Hello, this is Glenda Taylor. Welcome to the One and All Wisdom Podcast. When I started thinking about the subject of this podcast, I imagined it as just one little story. But that simple story took legs and walked into deeper and deeper complexities, into a tangle of ideas, into a thicket surrounded by some of the most poisonous controversies affecting our society today. My imagined topic expanded and diverged and circled back on itself, reminding me that being clear when discussing this one thing here requires clarifying a related thing over there and redefining something elsewhere and considering the history of it all and on and on. And so I decided to limit my objective for this podcast not to make definitive statements or even to express my own opinions, but simply to meander about with you, as it were, in the territory where a number of important issues overlap, lingering here and there to observe in various lights some particular thing or to recognize a connection or just to add to our gathering basket of thought. Modest as that attempt may be, I know that it will reveal some amazing associations and backstories and cross-references and so forth, each an important gem unto itself and all somehow interconnected. As the American naturalist John Muir said, quote, When we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. So what are those interconnected issues I've been referring to? You know already. You've no doubt been in discussion about them yourself or heard others talking and taking one side or the other and debating them, often hotly. Take, for example, the tension between the common good and personal preference, as in vaccine issues. Or there's what lives matter or don't matter legally, morally, culturally, and entitlement. Who's entitled and who's not, and what does that mean in relation to human rights in general? Or there's renegotiating terms about gender, the confusion of inadequate pronouns, and there's the emotions and legalities and practicalities related to assertions of gender fluidity, not limited to bathrooms and sports categories. And there's understanding the distinction between biological structure, male-female, and gender preference, masculine-feminine, neither, both, and the need to consider to what extent our definitions of masculine-feminine are cultural constructs, however deep-seated and ingrained they may be. Oh dear, I just time travel back to the 1970s when my Webster's Dictionary outraged me by defining feminine characteristics as gentleness, weakness, delicacy, modesty, and so forth, and specifically as female, women and girls, womanly. That's it? To be womanly, those were my choices? Back then I was busy with other women pointing to ancient archetypes like Athena, 
definitely not weak, and Aphrodite, definitely not modest, who had their place alongside a wide range of other archetypal patterns of behavior that were for thousands of years recognized as feminine and suitable for women and girls. But I digress. <laughs> Getting back to today, well, even today, Wikipedia has it this way, quote, Femininity is a set of attributes, behaviors, and roles generally associated with women and girls. Femininity can be understood as socially constructed, and there is some evidence that some behaviors considered feminine are influenced by both cultural factors and biological factors. Hmm. Ambiguous enough for you. Let's see who agrees and doesn't agree with portions of that. Big issue in our culture today, these definitions attached to gender. And with all those issues, there's the overarching issue in our country and in the world of how to have cohesiveness and unity holding together the society at large while also respecting sectarian, racial, religious, and cultural diversity. I know, that's a mind-boggling amount of stuff, and there's plenty of information, good, bad, and indifferent out there already on any of these subjects. But I intuit that these all are aspects of one big picture whose dimensions and contours are hard to see all at once. And so, as I said, I would like us to meander about looking from this angle and then that, to see better the light and the shadows that are surely there, and to remind ourselves that assumptions, expectations, and our state of unknowing or unawareness are really the issue at hand. For when we discuss such controversial things as I've been listing, we know our own personal perspectives are based on our own limited experiences. And also we know that problems in communication arise because of the muddying of meanings and definitions. Getting on the same page takes time and patience, and often we aren't even looking at the same book, let alone the same page, when it comes to definitions and meanings of what we're talking about. That's why I think it valuable to bring more backstory, more sidelights, more context bit by bit, without judgment about where the bits fit into our own opinion, but rather just allowing all the information to deepen our awareness in general. So, meander with me in this podcast and in the ones that follow, for I can see already that it's going to take a whole series of podcasts. Meander with me as I gather a bit of backstory here and a bit of a highlight there. As we stroll around peacefully first amongst the gigantic outcroppings of history. For people have always struggled with these serious questions and with the conflicts that arise when information is limited. Stephen Jay Gould, an American paleontologist, evolutionary biologist, and historian of science, said, quote, We live in an essential and unresolvable tension. We live in an essential 
and unresolvable tension between our unity with nature and our dangerous uniqueness. Our unity and our uniqueness. Systems that attempt to make sense of us, he says, by focusing exclusively either on the uniqueness or the unity are doomed to failure. But we must not stop asking questions and questing just because the answers are complex and ambiguous, end quote. Complex and ambiguous, right. So it's bound to be true our dealing with clarity about any of the issues I mentioned is not easy. From the beginning, the bards and storytellers and seers and medicine people and lineage keepers, the priests and philosophers, have had difficulty putting into clear words important things. Here, for example, is a probably frustrated ancient Chinese seer, quote, Deep and obscure is the one-beingness, the essence. (laughs) Deep and obscure, right? (laughs) Many of the issues we are caught up in today have deep roots that go back and back and are, for most of us, obscure. Best be humble about our state of unknowing. Such humility, too, can be a challenge, always has been. Listen to the words of an ancient origin story text from India from around 700 B.C. and notice how quickly muddied definitions get as the voice of the ancient seer struggles for adequate language about what must have been a challenging scholarly debate. Quote, In the beginning, this world was just being, one only, without a second. Just being, one, only, without a second. Oh, verily, to be sure, some people say in the beginning this world was just non-being, one, only, without a second. They say that from non-being, being was produced. But verily, whence could this be? How from non-being could being be produced? On the contrary, in the beginning, this world was just being, one, only, without a second. End quote. One only, without a second. Hmm. We'll look at that more than once in our meandering, I'll bet. But since we're back there in ancient history, this is a good time to take up my original simple little story. Here it is. It seems that once, long, long, long ago, an elderly grandmother became frail and wobbly on her feet. So her attentive son found a sturdy stick for her to lean on when she was walking around. This proved to be very helpful to Granny, of course, until one of the grandkids ran off with a stick, pretending it was a spear he could fling at an imaginary woolly mammoth. Then Granny's son found her another stick, but this time someone else came along and, without realizing the stick's usefulness to Granny, put the stick into the campfire and burned it. So finally, Granny's son, finding another sturdy stick, this time using strong sinew, tied a few colorful feathers to the stick so people would know that this was Granny's special stick, different from all other sticks, and so that people would leave the stick alone there in Granny's place. 
Granny was pleased, of course, and used that stick, keeping it near her at all times. Even when she went inside the hide shelter to sleep, her stick with the feathers tied to it would be propped outside, and people would be aware that she was there in her place. Now, it doesn't take much effort to imagine a sequel or a number of sequels spinning out from that original story. Let's see. We can easily imagine another elderly person saying, well, I need a stick of my own too. I'm an elder. Or someone else saying, I'll make a stick for my grandpa better looking or stronger than your granny's stick for sure. Or seeing how granny depended on that stick, someone might say, granny is so slow moving even with that stick and we're on the move now and she's a drag on us, slowing us down, another mouth to feed. I'll get rid of her stick. She won't last long without it. On and on, the stories can spin out in all directions. Like this possibility. Father comes along and sees a couple of kids wrestling right next to where Grandpa's stick is leaned against a log bench. Father gruffly shouts out to the kids, Don't wrestle around here in this place. You'll knock into Grandpa. You see a stick here. Respect his space. This is his space play somewhere else. And then from a few yards away by the cooking fire, we can easily imagine mother saying, well, don't send them over here where there's water boiling over this fire. They'll get scalded. This is my space. My space. His place. Her stick. My territory. You see where this is going, right? Yours, mine, hers, his. The pronouns spin around in multiplying symbols of entitlement, competition, territoriality, hierarchy, divisiveness, and much else. Of course, there are other kinds of sequels to my little granny stick story, not moving toward divisions, but back the other way, toward unity and inclusiveness rather than polarity and division. We can imagine Granny loaning her stick to a person who's suddenly injured, saying, Here, lean on my stick to get to your campfire. You can send it back to me by one of the kids. Generosity, sharing, compassion. And we can imagine someone in the village saying, Well, let's make sticks for all the elders. Inclusion. And further, anyone, not just elders, can make their own sticks. We can each have special, unique sticks of our own and acceptance of diversity. Or it might be that someone would say, when Granny's slowing everyone down, now remember, Grandma's the only one with the experience to remember the the way to where we need to go. So even though she may be slow moving, and we may need to help her along, we need her, like she needs us. And anyway, think of all she's done for us. Now it's our turn to take care of her. Communal good and individual good converging, overlapping, coexistence. The idea of such convergence, such unity of the common good and the individual good can feel far from us today. To imagine that our culture's current conflicts, polarities, divisions, and differences can be resolved in a coming together, in a unity that does not erase individual rights, values, differences, 
but a unity that enhances them? To imagine that, for me, requires probing deeper into the meaning of the very words I'm using here. Diversity, polarity, unity, division, wholeness, oneness, one without a second, two-ness, binary, multiplicity. We experience so much divisiveness in our world today. I say that we linger a bit here around the concept of unity and oneness before we get to two-ness or diversity or division. Oneness and unity are, according to the ever-present dictionary, synonymous. Here are some statements about oneness and unity from the dictionary. Unity is wholeness, and unity is being undivided or indivisible. In mathematics, unity is defined as the number one, or a quality regarded as being undivided. Unity also is defined as concord, harmony, or agreement. Oh, that's what we're so hungry for, isn't it? Concord, harmony, agreement. And unity and oneness, says our dictionary, means uniformity or sameness, as in a uniformity of thinking or feeling. Hmm. I can just hear the gears turning in your minds, but wait, there's more to check out. Jacob Bronowski, mathematician and philosopher, said, Science is the search for unity in the variety of our experience. Science is the search for unity in the variety of our experience. Another scientist a paleontologist, Teilhard de Chardin, who was also a French Jesuit priest, said, quote, The more we split and pulverize matter artificially, the more insistently it proclaims its fundamental unity. One of the Buddhist sutras states, quote, All beings long to return to the source of their origin, where perfect unity abides. And the Christian Gospel of Thomas says, when you unify both halves of yourself, you will become as you were originally created. Note now these quotes, and I could give you others like them by other scientists and scholars and people in other disciplines. These quotes speak of unity, oneness, wholeness as the essential, ultimate reality. By their definition, controversy and conflict are not the ultimate innate given reality. Unity is. The underlying strata, the ever-present surround, reality itself, oneness. It seems that people have believed that from the very beginning. The most ancient texts tell us before there was division, there was oneness. Here's an ancient text from China, quote, Something was, formless yet complete, that existed before heaven and earth, without sound, without substance, dependent on nothing, unchanging, all-pervading, unfailing, something, some one thing, was. 
Likewise, the Indian Rigveda from 1200 B.C. reads, quote, When neither being nor non-being existed, nor atmosphere, nor firmament, nor what is beyond, neither death nor immortality, no sign of day or night, that one was by its own energy. Unquote. And even earlier than that, in the ancient Egyptian pyramid text dating around 2400 B.C., from the hieroglyphic writing, we read, quote, not existed heaven, not existed earth, not had been created the things of the earth, plants and creeping things, yet was this oneness. End quote. One. Oneness. In the beginning, before there was division, there was oneness. Perhaps in our interactions and conversations with other people today, it it behooves us to remember that before these divisions we were disagreeing about, there was, there is oneness, there is unity, there was, is, and can be a wholeness. Hmm. Breathe into that. That that idea had been embedded in the human psyche from the beginnings of recorded history. This idea that a deep oneness and unity and wholeness is always a given condition, not something we have to work toward and create, but something that's already there, the original source ground state, according to sages of all times all over the world, in myths and stories of the beginnings of things. That's the first thing I want to pause and really pay attention to right now. The idea that unity or oneness already is and always was, no sense of division can take that away from us. It's a given. Wow. Whew. Not easy to believe even these days. And not easy to define this oneness, of course. Buddhism describes it this way, quote, When appearances and names are put away, when appearances and names are put away and all discrimination ceases, that which remains is the true and essential nature of things. And as nothing can be predicated as to the nature of essence, it is called the suchness of reality. Sometimes the state, that is, when all discrimination ceases, is called instead of suchness, it's called emptiness. It does not mean it is empty in our normal sense of the words as nothingness, but emptiness meaning empty of all limiting or prescribing definitions or concepts or, or assumptions. It's empty of everything but what it is. There's a song I love that sings of Resting in emptiness. Many of us get there in meditation or other means of moving beyond our limited ego consciousness, past our divisive, subdividing, categorizing surface consciousness. When we experience this great unity of everything, the great wholeness and interconnectedness, 
The Christian St. Paul said, calling this wholeness or ultimate oneness God, he said, In God we live and move and have our being. In God. Not separate from God. Not God over there and us created by God and now divided and separate from God. But God in whom we exist and everything else exists. Because God are the great oneness empty of any limitation, is also full of everything, since everything must be, by definition, in the one wholeness. I've hung out around that paradox for a long time. Empty and full. Full and empty. Yes, that. Not that. Not only that. All that. But when we experience that when we are aware of that unity or oneness beyond limitations or divisions in ourselves we of course realize many benefits the peace that passes understanding the calm alpha state of brainwave activity the common good possible beyond our divided and subdivided social structures the overarching self that spiritual and psychological wise people alike speak about, the higher self, the unified self that is the one. Valuable concept. (laughs) Something reliable and calming to contemplate and experience. But, circling back to the dictionary definition of the one as unity, we also must consider uniformity as being part of unity. In our time, we can imagine oneness getting caught in the there's only one way and it's my way, or there's only one way and it's this party's way, and so forth. We can imagine a limited and thus distorted view of oneness being co-opted for very limited purposes, resulting not in the unity of coming together in common agreement, but rather in division, rebellion, falling apart. An inadequate understanding of the idea of the oneness in unity as the backstory of everything, an inadequate understanding or interpretation of that, thus creates shadows, unity as sameness, unity as a loss of diversity, sameness as a loss of individual freedom, and so forth. Uniting (laughs) can be uniting in common cause against some other cause. That's not truly unity, of course. But we see how that shadow is out there in our cultural understanding, our lack of understanding today about unity and oneness. Are you still with me here? Okay, I won't take us down that rabbit hole any further. But wait, I hear you say, if unity is the fundamental, essential thing, why does our sense of unity and oneness seem so elusive? Why don't we see this unity more in our thinking, in our midst? How did things get so divided? Well, the myths speak of this too, in accounts from all over the world. As the speaker in 6th century China put it simply, quote, At first there was nothing, 
Time passed, and nothing became something. It was the undeveloped. Time passed, and something split in two. End quote. This splitting story is the same in almost every tradition I've been able to discover. The one, unity, became the two, two-ness. That is an ancient archetypal concept also, embedded in us too. Things split apart. The center doesn't hold, as the poet William Butler Yeats reminds us. Turning and turning, in the widening eye, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Yeats is describing the destructive results of splitting, of course. But the splitting apart can also be seen as creative. In the words of another ancient text from India, quote, in the beginning, verily, all this did not exist. From non-being, being was produced. That being changed into a self. Verily, in the beginning, this self was alone. There was no other winking thing. This self, though, had no pleasure. One alone has no pleasure. The one desired a second, and became as large as a woman and a man in close embrace. The one divided itself into two. The one divided itself into two. Thomas Huxley, English biologist and anthropologist specializing in comparative anatomy, said, quote, The complex, the complex, is everywhere evolved out of the simple. Hmm. Oneness, twoness the simple, the complex. Ancient Egyptian creation stories also say that the one original became the two called Shu and Tefnut. Shu is translated as emptiness or air above, and Tefnut is translated as moisture or dew that descends. A Native American origin story tells of the woman who fell from the sky. She fell from the area above into a watery place below. I like the Egyptian version. The separating of the above from the below, of the air from the waters, of the invisible from the visible. The Native American story says that the woman who fell from the sky used mud from the depths of the water retrieved by helpful animals to create solid earth in the midst of the waters. And then she gives birth to twins who take care of creating the rest of things. Twins. Tunis. The one and the two. The binary. Hmm. Henri Poincaré, the French mathematician, theoretical physicist, engineer, and philosopher of science said, and I quote, What is it indeed that gives us the feeling of elegance in a scientific solution, in a demonstration? It is the harmony of the diverse parts, the harmony 
of the diverse parts, their symmetry, their happy balance. In a word, it is all that introduces order, all that gives unity, that permits us to see clearly and to comprehend at once both the ensemble and the details. To see clearly and to comprehend at once both the ensemble and the details, the one and the two. But seeing clearly the ensemble and the unique and diverse details at once is not so easy. Oneness, twoness, binary. Computer people today are familiar with the term binary. Binary is a base two number system and is used by computers. Base two means there are only two digits, one and zero, which correspond to on and off digital states. Binary, only two. Works great most of the time for our digital world. And binary works for some human conditions, such as with committed just two types of relationships. For example, just me and you, us two, binary. But are there only to be two ways of being or behaving? Is two-ness enough diversity? Ah, here we come in our wandering to the consideration of non-binary. Now, lots of people today are using the term non-binary Non-binary means not being limited to mere two-ness. We'll get to the use of this term about non-binary in relation to discussions about gender identity, I'm sure, in a minute. But let's just think about it in general first. Going back to where we left off with the Hindu Upanishads where I read, One alone has no pleasure. The one desired a second, becoming as large as a man and a woman in close embrace. Then the one divided itself into two. But the ancient text goes on in the translation of the writer Michael Adam. Quote, the story continues with the game still played by men and women everywhere. She runs in order to be chased. She hides in order to be found. It is a game as old as creation itself. I will hide, said the first god-woman. She took the guise of a cow, whereupon the first god-man became a bull and covered her. So cattle were born. The first god-woman hid again in the guise of a mare. He found her and became a stallion, mounted her, and horses were born. She became a ewe, and he a ram, and so there were sheep and rams in the world. And so it was that all creatures came about, even to the ants, even to all lesser and the least of all things. In this way it is told that the world is not the manufacture of God, but God's manifestation. We, as all other creatures, are not the product of God apart from God. We are God's appearance. God is not only everywhere, God is everything. God is everyone, and God is the one. End quote. Hmm. Now that, as I mentioned, is a very ancient idea in human history. Not something cooked up in the New Age movement or by some radical today. And it's an idea or understanding that is or was, in fact, worldwide. A Native American Zuni story tells it this way, quote, In the beginning of the new-making, the container of all, 
solely had being. There was nothing else whatsoever throughout the great space of the ages. Then the container of all thought outward in space, whereby mists of increase, steams potent of growth, clouds of mist were evolved and uplifted. And by means of innate knowledge, the all-container made itself in person and form of the sun, and with this appearance came the brightening of the spaces with light, and with the brightening of the spaces the great mist clouds were thickened together and fell, whereby there was evolved water and the world-holding sea, and on and on the divisions go in the Zuni story, with division after division creatively emerging and arising out of and within the original source, the one, the two, the many. The coming into being of the many speaks to us of the values of the non-binary, of not being rigidly defined or confined by just two or even just one. Remember how we hesitated before the truncated version of oneness, the sameness, the suffocating constraints of just one way, my way? So, the non-binary, the not just two, could mean there's more than one way and there's more than two ways of looking at things. We can explore more possibilities, be open to all sorts of possibilities, many more than two infinite possibilities. Creation continues the benefits of the non-binary. But now again, like my little stick story, this could go in various directions. This multiplying could, can, does in certain circumstances also lead to subdividing, specialization, categorizing, partitioning, hierarchy, so much so that there is a loss of attention to the original wholeness and unity of everything. That's one way to imagine possible unfortunate effects of the non-binary in general. To take one of many random examples, if we're so focused on being, say, Texan, and forget that we're American, or that we're human, or that we are creatures of the earth in common with all other life forms, in common with Earth herself, it's easy to forget. But it is important, surely, when we're advocating for diversity or individual rights or whatever, to remember the oneness, the wholeness, the one who is the container of all in the Zuni story, the one within which the many have existence. Again, from ancient Egypt we read, quote, I am the one who came into being, and I am the creator of what came into being. After my coming into being, many were the things which came into being, and all were spoken from my mouth." End quote. As Mohammed is recorded as saying, quote, Where one is present, God is the second, and where there are two, God is the third. Quote. Or as the old saying goes, when a person asks, tell me, where is God? The wise one replies, first tell me where God is not. 
As a Hindu Upanishad said, God is hidden in all beings, all pervading, the self within all being. The Swiss psychologist Carl Jung spoke of this self, and he said, quote, The self then functions as a union of opposites. The self then functions as a union of opposites and thus constitutes the most immediate experience of the divine which is psychologically possible to imagine. Let me read that again. The self, Jung says, functions as a union of opposites and thus constitutes the most immediate experience of the divine which it is psychologically possible to imagine. In other places, Jung described the self with a capital S, self, as he defined it psychologically, as the midpoint, the midpoint between the depths and breadths of all consciousness and the limited individual ego consciousness, the midpoint between the ego and the broader consciousness, the midpoint, the balancing, centering vantage point. From there, Jung said, we're able to see in all directions and experience the opposites as complements. Experience the opposites as complements. A variety of movements in our world now, thankfully, are pressing us to seek more coming together instead of dividing up, drawing the polarities back together from states of opposition to states of complementarity into harmony, the many in good order within the one. These folks remind us to re-examine all our cultural and personal attitudes, to reunify our communities, our nation, even our own inner split psyches. Many of us are familiar with the Chinese symbol of the yin and yang with its dark and light halves, significantly those halves in dynamic balance, dynamic, fluid halves, not rigid, permanently fixed half-circle halves in that symbol. The ancient Chinese say that everything is changing all the time, increasing and decreasing, coming and going, hence the dynamic, fluid, rather odd-shaped graphic symbol of the yin and yang we have become familiar with. Not often enough do we also pay attention in that yin-yang symbol to the surrounding and containing circle around the black and white symbols. We don't even notice the surrounding containing circle as we focus on the division. We don't even notice that there is an all-encompassing container within which the polarities have their existence and movement the two within the one. But whether we notice it or not, in Chinese mythology, the two original divisions, called yin and yang, have and keep their origin and their reality within oneness, within unity itself. Chinese philosophy, well explained by the ancient Taoists, say that these divisions, symbolic in the yin-yang design and actual, in reality, represent fundamental patterns of ways of being, of movements of the life force within all things. 
these patterns, these tendencies toward certain ingrained ways of being, patterned over countless generations of human life, are thus deeply embedded in each one of us and in each of our cultures and subcultures, embedded also in newly evolving subcultures, like the current non-binary movement. Embedded in these newly evolving and changing patterns of behavior is a deep, ingrained memory of thousands of years of history of expectations and assumptions not easy to shed or simply ignore. Getting back to the Chinese, though, the traditional understanding is that all things consisted of these two within the one, the yin and the yang, but these principles are not rigidly fixed, but are in dynamic, fluctuating harmony. As Jung imagined, especially after being introduced to Chinese thought by Richard Wilhelm, the opposites can be creative complements. Paradoxically, Jung called the bringing together of the opposites the individuation process. (laughs) We truly become our unique selves unified when we are no longer split between the opposites that are always present, but we are able to be with all of it creatively. How? Well, here's the big thing. The one, the oneness, the wholeness does not cease to exist when the complementary poles are present. But as shown in the yin-yang symbol, the circle surrounds and holds together the dynamic, fluctuating divisions. That's pretty profound. I've spent most of my lifetime pondering and living into that fundamental and seemingly paradoxical philosophical notion. The many enfolded and even expanding within the one. But this is a notion that much of modern science, especially physics, seems to support. The Chinese symbol of yin and yang is quite hopeful, too, because it builds in, it builds in an awareness of a self-correction that when things get out of balance one way or another, This is symbolized by the dots of the opposite color at the center of each, the yin and the yang. When things go too far in one direction, they automatically, say the ancient Chinese, begin to grow from the seat of the opposite back into balance, back in the other direction. I have a feeling that the current emphasis on the non-binary is an appropriate correcting movement back into balance in our culture, back into balance away from the dominant binary, the just two and only two ways of thinking, whether it be in politics or parties or defining gender or whatever. Moving away from just two binary also frees us up to move not only into more multiplicity, but also into more awareness of oneness back toward what the Zuni called the container of all, allness, as well as uniqueness. 
Yes, that. Not only that. All that. Now, I've wandered <laughs> round and about and circled about, and maybe this is a good place to stop. In the next few podcasts, I hope to venture into and explore in this same meandering manner more ideas and stories around the splitting of the common good into individual ownership of rights. I also want us to revisit the long-standing definitions of what is referred to as masculine and feminine patterns of behavior, noticing how taking into account how ingrained they are, these long-standing patterns of expectations and assumptions and restrictions, and how knowing more about that can heal and help us change and come together more easily. There's a lot to explore. But this is enough wandering for today, I think. Remembering the old African story about Anansi, the spider who often, it is said, spoke a word too big for his mouth. (laughs) I should retreat modestly now for a while and give us all time to think about what's been said and how it needs to be modified or expanded or challenged. Remembering, though, I hope that Behind every notion of I, or me, or you, or they, or she, or he, is this one wholeness with so many and so few adequate names that by now I just call that all-container, one great self, the great mystery. As the Native American Black Elk said, quote, The first piece, which is the most important, is that which comes within the souls of people when they realize their relationship, their oneness with the universe and all its powers, and when they realize that at the center of the universe dwells the Great Spirit and that that center is really everywhere. It is within each of us. And before that mystery, I stop for today. This is Glenda Taylor. Thank you for being with me on the One and All Wisdom podcast. Join us again next time as we wander further. Mm-hmm.